All right, well, good morning. We are going to jump into it this morning. Uh, we're going to take on the life of David. So uh, hopefully you brought your hand, hand, uh, handout back with you. Remember that handout is good for the whole uh, series. And we'll send out um, each week on my Monday email, I'll send out a copy of that week's email and, or uh, homework and handout. Uh, but if you'll just keep bringing that one back, that's all you need. Well, let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into the life of David. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this, uh, again, opportunity to come together as men and study your word. Thank you for these guys getting up early on a Tuesday morning to come out and be part of this, this study. And I pray, Father, that as we dig into the life of David, that we would see uh, what you would have us to see in his life, Father, that we're not necessarily supposed to emulate David. We're not supposed to try to be like David, but we're supposed to love the God of David the way he loved you. And so, Father, would you show us the godly characteristics of his life, but also show us those characteristics that, um, Father, we, we are prone to pick up on and to live out in the same way. Lord, we want to be men who bring glory and honor to you. We want to be as he was, a man after God's own heart. So use his life to show us what it means to be a godly man. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You know, one of the hardest things about doing a six-week series uh, on this topic is choosing which men to uh, use because there's, there's a lot of men we, we could look at. We're going to be looking at, uh, of course, David this morning. We're going to look at uh, Abraham uh, later on. We're going to look at Lot. We're actually going to look at a guy named Nebuchadnezzar who wasn't a godly man at all, and yet he did have a relationship with God just from a different, in a different way. Uh, so there's a lot of guys we could look at, but David to me has always been fascinating because I guess I relate to him more than pretty much any other character in the Bible. Um, I don't relate to Daniel uh, because Daniel is one of those guys that we never get to see anything negative about him. He's, he's portrayed in the Bible as almost perfect, and I can't relate to perfection. Um, I, I don't even know what that remotely looks like. Um, David I can relate to because he was flawed. And the Bible is pretty uh, blatant about his flaws. And he's pretty blatant about his flaws. If you've ever read the Psalms, about 73 of the Psalms were written by David. And those Psalms are, are like glimpses into his soul where he just bears it all before God. And he's not afraid to tell God what he's thinking. He's not afraid to admit his struggles, even his anger at God. He's the guy that says things like, you know, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why is this happening to me? I can relate to David. And so as we look at his life today, we're going to see a guy who was fallen, yet he was forgiven, and he proved to be faithful. And so that's going to be important for us to understand because, uh, as I said in my prayer, our, our goal should not to be to be David, to act like David, because there's a lot of things about David we don't want to pick up on. It's to see what made David a man after God's own heart. We talked about this briefly last week, but Acts chapter 13 says, God raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. So God called David a man after his own heart. When? When he was just a kid, when he was a boy. Uh, not when he was 30 years old, 40 years old, 70 years old, not after he'd lived a long, 
godly life, but he said, he's a man after my own heart, even when he was still living at home under his father's roof, and he was the youngest of all the brothers. That's pretty significant because God knows something about this young man that leads him to say that he has a heart for me. He has a heart for not just God, but the ways of God, the will of God. He's a man after God's own heart. But if you think about it, we probably know more about David than any other biblical character um, besides Jesus. We've heard the stories. If you grew up in the church like I did, you went to Sunday school and you heard Sunday school stories about David. And he's known really for two different events in his life. One is his greatest victory, which is what? Goliath, right? The story of Goliath. Any kid who went to Sunday school knows the story of Goliath. Uh, It's that story of, you know, the the runt beating up the bully. Um, It's, we love those kind of stories, right? The, The little guy wins. And so that's the victory, his defeat of Goliath. But we also know about his greatest failure, which was what? Bathsheba, right? He sees this woman bathing on a rooftop, it's a, t- it's a time of the year when he should have been at war. When kings go to war, he's up on his roof kind of taking it easy. And he spies this woman. Now, why she's bathing on the roof, we, we aren't told. Uh, but she is, and he sees her, and he sends for her, and he sleeps with her. And he ends up getting her pregnant. Well, it just so happens she's married. And so in order for her to, him to have her, he arranges the death of her husband, Uriah. Um, both of these stories are in the book of 1 Samuel. And it's, again, his greatest victory and his greatest failure. That's kind of how we know David. And there's a whole lot in between, right? There's other things that happened in his life, both good and bad, that help us to understand who he is. But why does God call him a man after his own heart? What would God, what would possess God to declare this guy to be that way? Now, he made this statement about David before any of these things happened. So God knows something about David that maybe even David doesn't know about David. He knows that at his core, he's a young man who has a heart for him. Doesn't mean he's not going to sin, obviously, because he does. He's going to have failures. He's going to have setbacks. He's going to do things that are displeasing to God. But God refers to him as a man after his own heart. Why? Well, it goes back to those three things we talked about last week. First of all, he had a healthy fear of God. He, he seems to, from day one, from the day that God called him, he seemed to have a fear of God. And again, a healthy fear of God. He, he didn't cower from God. He didn't run from God. But he had a reverence for an awe for God all throughout his life. And again, yes, he did bad things. That fear of God didn't really show up when Bathsheba was on the rooftop, right? Um, He kind of forgot about the fear of God and gave in to his pleasures. He did what he wanted to do. But later on, when God punished him for that sin and took the life of that child, he understood that he deserved what was coming. He prayed that God would spare that child, but God said no. And he reverently obeyed the will of God because he knew that he had offended a holy God. He also understood God's love for him. And and you'll see this all throughout the Psalms that, that, again, what I love about David is when he writes many of his Psalms, he starts out negatively. He starts out with those questions of why, why me, why now, why did you do this? What have I done to offend you? 
Where have you gone? Why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? He asks all these questions. And by the time he gets to about the halfway mark in the psalm, he's come full circle and said, but I know you love me. I know I can trust you. I know you have my best in mind. Um, I I actually um, wrote a book a number of years ago called Shock and Awe, and it's based on the Psalms of David. And it, it basically looks at how this guy had the gall to say to God things that I don't think we're supposed to say. I mean, he was just brutally honest with God. Why? Because he knew God loved him and he knew that God knew his thoughts anyway. So I'm just going to share with God what I'm thinking. And he did. And, and there's some powerful lessons to learn about this guy who understood the love of God. And out of that came this sold out devotion to God. He, he was willing to serve God all throughout his life. He was willing to fight for God, do things for God, because he knew that God was holy. God loved him in spite of him, and therefore he wanted to be devoted to him. That's why he's considered a man after God's own heart. He's not sinless. He's not perfect. He's a flawed vessel. He's got all kinds of issues that he's dealing with, from lust to you name it. He's got issues, but yet he knows that he worships a holy God. And his life is characterized by these things, prayer, dependence on God, um, a reverence for God, all these things we talked about last week. These are characterizations of a godly man. These do not make you a godly man. They flow out of a godly life. And, And so his devotion manifested itself in everyday life through these things, just like they do in my life and in your life. Perfectly, no. None of us do these things perfectly. None of us are completely sold out all the time to God. We too have our flaws. We too have our moments when we walk away, when we offend God, when we do things that are displeasing to God. We're far from perfect, just like David. And what's interesting about David is that early on, God chooses him to replace King Saul. He's anointed, but he's not appointed. This story has always bugged me that God sends the prophet Samuel to the home of Jesse, and he says, bring out your sons, because it's there that he's going to find the next king of Israel to replace King Saul, who's not a godly man. And so Jesse parades all the sons, the oldest to the youngest, and he brings them forward. And every time the prophet sees one of the sons, he goes, yeah, this is the guy. This, This has got to be the guy. And guy goes, nope, not him. Okay, it's got to be this one. No, not him. And he goes through the list, and and then finally he runs out of sons, and he goes to Jesse, do you have any more? And he goes, well, there's David, the redheaded kid who's out watching the sheep. He hadn't even brought him in. He didn't think highly enough of David to have brought him before the prophet, and so he has to go get David, and he's literally called a redheaded child. He's got red hair, which is kind of weird for a Hebrew to have. And he brings him in, and God goes, that's the guy. Remember, he tells Samuel, don't don't look at the outside. Don't look at their outer aspect, because I look at the heart. And he says, that's the guy, that young man. The, the, The last one even Jesse would have considered to be kingly material is the one that God chooses. And he gets anointed the king, but he doesn't get to take the throne. And again, that that part of the story bugs me. It's like, well, that sucks, right? You know, you get to be anointed, but you don't get to be king. As a matter of fact, Saul remains the king for years. 
And this poor young guy has to go through what I, I call God's remedial school for slow learners. You know, he's, he's got to get prepared for the role that God has for him because he's not quite there yet. Why would God do this? Here's what jumps out at me. God has declared him to be a man after his own heart. And that, that's amazing, right? To, to have God say that of you would be amazing, that you're a man after my own heart. But here's what the scriptures reveal. He's not yet a man of God. And there's a difference. See, he, he's been declared something by God. You're a man after my own heart. You are a man who has a heart for the things of God. You are a man who has a devotion to God, but you're not yet a godly man. Remember last week we said godliness is not static. You're not born with it. You don't get it at salvation. It's something that's an add-on, according to Peter. You're to add to your faith godliness. And so we're going to see that David, though anointed by God, is not yet appointed by God. He doesn't get to sit on the throne because he's not yet ready for what God has in store for him. So God puts him in this leadership school. And it's not a fun place to be. You know, my, one of my daughters just graduated this weekend from um, TCU's uh, executive management uh, master's program. And uh, it's for those who've gone on with their careers, they're successful in their careers, they've gone back to school to get a master's, but it's called an executive master's because they're already in the field and it's one of the hardest things you can do because you're working full time and you're taking class full time and you're taking tests and you're writing papers. And, and I'm a really proud dad because she went through that and she did well academically and scored in the top 10% of her cohort. That's, that's great. Well, that, guess what? This guy's gonna go through something very similar. He's gonna go through God's executive MBA program. He's gonna put him through the ringer because he's got to learn some things. And what I want you to get out of this this morning is that God, I don't know where God has you I don't, I don't know where you necessarily are in life. You may be retired. You may be still deep into your career with kids. And, but wherever you are, God, God is training you for something. God is preparing you for something. God has you in his leadership training school, and you may not like it at all. You may not enjoy it. You may not think it's fun. You may not think it's beneficial, but God knows what he's doing. That's one of the things we learned about David. He could tell all along the way that God was doing something in his life, preparing him for what God had in store for him. Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is after David has been anointed, literally anointed with oil, and declared to be the next king of Israel, but Saul's still on the throne. So what happens? It says that Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. David ends up serving King Saul. Now, that's an awkward situation, right? You've been told by God, the prophet of God, that you're going to replace this guy. You're going to be his replacement, and you've got to go work for him, and he doesn't know it yet. So it's not exactly a fun situation for David. And it says, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. Now, Earlier on in this same chapter, it tells us that Saul was um, possessed, in a sense, by a spirit sent from God, and he would fly off the handle. He would get enraged. He would lose it. 
and he would lash out at all those around him. But when David would play his harp, it would soothe him. Now, again, what an awkward job to have. You're working for this guy that you're eventually going to replace. You know it. He doesn't know it. And probably the last thing you want is for him to find out. David's just a young boy. And he's working for this guy, somewhat as a servant. And this guy loses it on a regular occasion. He literally goes ballistic. And David has to play his lyre, and he calms down. If I'm David, I'm going, okay, God, how long is this going to last? When are you going to get rid of this guy so I can sit on the throne? When, when does he go and I, I come in? And this goes on for years. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, you got to think, that's not a, a fun job to have, right? And I'm sure there are other things that David had to do, but one of the things he had to do was minister to a madman, play his harp so that this guy could calm down so he wouldn't kill him. That was his job. Not a fun job. Not something he woke up in the morning going, man, I can't wait to go play my lyre for Saul. But he did it. He did what he had to do because God had him where he was supposed to be. This is exactly what he was called to do. So he ends up serving the guy he's going to replace. He ends up having to put up with all these things. And he, he's learning not to serve Saul. He's really learning to serve God because who put him there? God. Have you ever found yourself in a job, a situation, a relationship where you go, God, what, what, what's up with this? When are you going to get me out of this? Well, what if that's exactly where God wants you to be? And if God is sovereign, and we talk about God's sovereignty a lot in this Bible study, then God has you where he wants you to be. God placed you there so that he might teach you something about you, yes, about the situation, but more importantly, something about him. And I really feel like what God was doing with David was teaching him to hey, serve me. At the end of the day, you're serving me. Whatever it is you're doing, whether you're playing the lyre, whether you're you know, cleaning the restrooms, whatever, whatever it is you're having to do right now, David, Ken, you, do it as if you're serving me. See, here's what it tells us. He, God, chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. That's ultimately what God has in store for David, but that's not what he's doing right now, right? And he will ultimately guide the people of Israel with an upright heart and with skillful hands. But in order for him to be able to do that, he's got to learn how to serve, how to put himself last, and put other people first. And he has to do it by God's plan, serving Saul. A godless man who is literally losing it. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, he's not walking with God. He is actually living apart from God at this point in his life. And yet David has to serve him so that he might know how to serve God and to shepherd the people of God. See, God's preparing him for what he wants him to do. And so all during this time, and we're not going to be able to look at all of David's life, but throughout his life, especially those early years when he's living with Saul and then eventually running from Saul, he's learning patience. Anybody in here like to learn patience? Anybody ever pray for patience? You've probably been told that's the, the prayer you never pray. Never ask God for patience because you'll get answers to that prayer. I've never had to pray for patience because God 
brings it anyway. He brings the situations. He puts me in situations where I have to learn patience, and I hate patience. I hate having to have patience. I prefer everything to happen quickly. So what does he do? He puts him in a place where he's going to have to be patient. And later on, he writes this, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. See, all the Psalms of David, what make them powerful is not that they're just inspired by the Holy Spirit, but this guy was speaking from experience. David could say, it pays to wait for the Lord. Why? Because he had waited for the Lord over and over again, waiting for the Lord to show up, waiting for the Lord to make him king, waiting for the Lord to fulfill his promises. He knew what it meant to wait. That's why he could write about it. And God was teaching him that. How do you learn to wait for the Lord? By waiting for the Lord. <laughs> I mean, there's no other way to do it, right? There's, it's not, I don't take my Bible at night and lay it under my pillow and hope that it just absorbs up through the fabric, right? I, I got to get in the word. I got to wait. I got to be patient for him to do what he's going to do. I don't necessarily like it, but that's the only way to learn patience, right? Is by waiting. You don't get patience by hurrying. He also wrote this in Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. If you wait for the Lord, good things happen. But I guarantee there's not a man in the room that likes waiting on the Lord. You don't like waiting on your wife. You don't like waiting on your kids. You don't like waiting on anything. You can't wait for football season to start. You can't wait. We hate to wait. And yet, what does he say? Wait on the Lord. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Guess who was prospering in his way in David's life? Saul. He's the king. He's got all the kingly attributes. He's got all the kingly kingly rights and benefits, and David is just a servant who plays the harp to keep him from killing him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. And this was so true in David's life, and that's why he could write what he writes, and we read it, and we can believe it because he wrote from experience. This guy knew what he was talking about. It pays to be still before the Lord. See, God was teaching David humility. Humility takes a, a secondary seat in my life on the list of things that I hate. I don't like to be humble. I, I'm not going to say I love to be prideful, but I prefer pride over humility. I don't like to be humble. I don't like to be humbled. I, I, I don't enjoy it. I don't pray for it. I don't aspire to it. And yet, it's one of the keys that David had to learn. If he was going to truly be a king after God's own heart, a godly man, a man who pleases God, he was going to have to have humility. Guess where he learned it? Working for Saul. Not only did he have to humble himself before Saul, but he was going to see Saul humbled. He was going to watch this guy go from God's chosen king to a pariah until the point where God took his life. See, he was going to learn what it meant to be humbled, the importance of humility in the life of a man of God. There's no place for pride, whether you're the king or whether you're the servant serving the king. Humility has no place in my life. It had no place in David's life. It has no place in your life. That's why he later wrote, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. God prefers humble people. He hates prideful people, 
He prefers humble people. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. One of the signs of a humble man of God is he is obedient to the ways of God. He places himself under the will of God. And you can say, God, I don't necessarily understand it. I don't necessarily even like it. But you know what? I'm going to humbly submit to your will. See, that's what we learned from the life of David. He was willing to trust God. And that's why all of this was building his faith. It's interesting that, that Peter says, add to your faith godliness along with all those other things, moral uprightness. But even our faith has to grow, right? Even our faith should increase in scope and size. That's what it's said of Abraham, when we look at his life, we'll see that he grew in his faith as time went on. My faith should increase over time. And David, I believe, had faith in God, but his faith would increase as he learned to trust God rather than men. And this is, this is a battle you and I face every day of our lives because we are tempted to trust man. We are tempted, tempted to trust the ways of man. And it's more difficult for us to trust God, right? Because we can't see God. We don't fully understand God. And yet, if we're going to be godly, we have to learn to trust God. See, David had to learn to trust that God would one day make him king. He was anointed. The prophet had laid his hands on him, but he was not yet on the throne. And years would go by before that would happen, and he was going to have to trust God. And guess what? It was going to go from bad to worse, over time. One minute he's serving Saul, trying to keep him from killing him by playing his harp. But then not long after that, he's going to literally be running from Saul, hiding from Saul to keep Saul from killing him. He's going to be on the run. He's going to be um, pursued by mercenaries whose sole purpose in life is to kill him. And they've been sent by Saul and the whole time he's waiting for what? God to make him king. You said you would. You promised I would be. When? See, waiting humbly, patiently for God to do what he said he is going to do builds our faith. It makes us stronger in our faith. That's why he could write, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue you. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. This was written during those dark days when he was running for his life. He says, I trust in you. See, the biggest test for me in my life is when I'm going through difficulties, can I say this? I trust you. Typically what I say, I say are things like, why me? Why now? When's it going to be over? What did I do to deserve this? Why are you mad at me? Why have you left me? Why have you forsaken me? but I should be saying, I trust you. I don't have to say, I love it. I don't have to say, bring it on, bring more. But I, I should be able to say, I trust you because you're my God. My times are in your hand. You know what you're doing. And I can rest in you in spite of what's happening around me and to me. So God is transforming this young man into a man of God. He's a man after God's own heart, but he's not yet that man of God. And one of the things that happens in his life that I find fascinating is that God starts removing crutches. What's a crutch? Well, a crutch literally is a device that you use to help you when you are injured. You 
put it under your arm and you, you, you use it to protect your leg. If you've damaged your, your knee, your ankle, it's a crutch. You lean on it so that you don't have to lean on your leg, right? So God's going to remove crutches from David's life. And what I want you to think about it today are what are the crutches in your life? What are the things you lean on rather than God? See, he's over time going to lose his job. Now, it wasn't the best job in the world as far as I can tell, playing the harp for this guy, but he's at least living, living, living in the palace, right? It's, a, it's probably a well-paying job. It's got some job security, but he's going to lose his job. He's going to lose his wife because she's the daughter of Saul. He's going to lose his mentor, Samuel. He's going to be literally parted from the guy who has led him all the way. He's going to lose his best friend, Jonathan, the son of Saul. All of this is going to happen a very short period of time. And he's going to lose his self-esteem. He's going to lose his sense of self-worth. Who am I? What, what am I here for? He's going to literally be living in caves and running for his life for years. All of these things are crutches, right? And in David's life, they had become substi substitutes for God. Not all the time, but enough to where God said, you know what? I'm going to take those away from you. I'm going to take your wife away from you. I'm going to take your mentor, Samuel, away from you. And everyone he took away, what David had to learn is, I have no one else but who? God. You know what's fascinating about the story of David at this point is he's hiding in a cave in the wilderness, and it basically says all the ne'er-do-wells, misfits, and losers join him in that cave. Um, I originally called this ministry Mighty Men because of the Mighty Men of David. And what's fascinating is the Mighty Men of David that are referred later on in the life of David are the very losers who showed up at the cave to, quote, help him. They had debt. They were um, on the run, on the lamb, just like him. They all show up in the cave. And just think about this. I've been anointed king. I'm not yet king. I'm hiding in a cave and this is what God sends me. Losers, debtors, malcontents, misfits, they all show up. And I, I'd be going, really, God? This, this is my army? This is what you give me? But those men will be transformed into the mighty men of David by the time God's done. See, God knew what he was doing. God had a plan for David. But he, he knew, first and foremost, I got to get him to leave behind all the crutches, all the things that he has used to substitute for me. See, Isaiah tells us this. He says, you are my servant. I have chosen you, this is God speaking, and not cast you off. Fear not, God says, I am with you. Be not dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. See, if there's anything in my life that I have put that weight on, that it's going to be my God, it's going to strengthen me, it's going to help me, my portfolio, my, my investments, my, you know, my skills, my abilities, my mental capacities. Anything I lean on other than God has become a substitute for God. This is what David had to learn. And again, I, I don't like learning these lessons. I know you don't like learning these lessons, but they're critical if you're going to be a man after God's own heart. You have to learn these lessons. If you're leaning on something or someone else other than God, you're not leaning on God. 
And I'm not telling you God's a crutch. God is the furthest thing from a crutch that anything could be. God is our sustaining power. God is everything we need for life and godliness. We are to lean on him. Not like a crutch, but because he's everything. I can't live this life without him. And crutches, whatever they may be in my life or your life, if you think about it, they're always on a horizontal plane, right? They're always something of this earth. They're, they're temporary. They, they, they have limited power, but they take our eyes off God. So if I'm leaning on my own abilities, which at this point in my life, I think I'm learning not to do that because I realize my abilities aren't as great as I once thought they were. But I still do it just like you still do it. As soon as I start leaning on my abilities, I've taken my eyes off of God. As soon as I start leaning on whatever finances I may have or investments I may have put aside for retirement, as soon as I lean on that, I'm no longer leaning on God. I'm no longer trusting him for the future and it paralyzes my walk of faith. But if I'll lean on him, if I'll put all the weight of my life on him, he never fails me, he never forsakes me, he always comes through and David needed to learn that. All the crutches in my life, all the crutches in your life, are, are temporary in terms of their ability to provide relief. Uh, they, they can't sustain forever. You know, if, you, if, if you're having to walk with a crutch right now because you've got a bad knee or you've had hip surgery or whatever it may be, there is a time for that and it makes sense, but there comes a time when you throw off the crutch. You know, I was at the airport one day getting ready to board a flight and there was a young guy sitting next to me and had a, he had one of those boots on his foot. And I said, what'd you do? He said, oh, I... Uh, I injured my leg. I said, really, are you, are you in therapy now? And he goes, and he kind of got this weird smile on his face. And he goes, um, no, I was. I said, when did you get out of therapy? He goes, last year. I said, why are you, and you're still wearing the boot? And he goes, and then he smiled again. And he goes, yeah, he said, I'm not injured anymore. But I learned if I wear the boot, I get to board first. <laughs> and he literally would put the boot on when he got to the airport and it got him on the plane early. And I thought, man, that's genius. But then, then you think about it, I go, that's pretty sad. That's like walking around still using a crutch when you no longer have an injury. It's a lie. It, it, it's meant for temporary relief, not permanent relief. See, the crutches... Are, are temporary because they only provide a quick fix. And that's why we like them, right? It's a quick fix. Um, I, I like quick fixes. I, I'm not a patient person. And they bring immediate relief, but they don't bring permanent relief. That's why crutches at some point need to be thrown away. Only God provides permanent solutions. And yet we have crutches, all of us have them. We manufacture them. The world offers them to us. The enemy loves for you to have crutches. The enemy's going to always say, lean on this. You need this. This is better for you. This, this will make you stronger. This will make you more successful. This will make you more popular. He's always offering us crutches. Isn't that what the fruit was? The fruit in the garden was nothing more than a crutch. If you eat of this, you'll be like God. They had everything they needed. They had perfect communion with God, and he offers them a crutch, a temporary solution that was going to cause permanent problems. 
See, we're far from perfect. David was far from perfect. He was chosen, but not yet complete. That's one of the things about his life I think we overlook. And you and I are very similar in that aspect, that we too were chosen by God. How do I know that? Well, the scriptures tell me. You are a chosen race. This is New Testament. Peter speaking of you and I as believers. We're a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We're a people for his own possession. We too have been chosen, personally chosen by God, and he has a plan for you. And that plan isn't just to one day take you to be with him in heaven. That's great, right? That's wonderful. If I died right now, I'd go to be with him, and I'm, I'm all over that. I fully believe that. I have perfect confidence in that, but that's not the only plan he has for me or for you. Paul tells the Ephesians, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. When? Heaven? No, there's no need for them in heaven. It's here and now. God has a plan for me right now, which he prepared beforehand, that we should what? Walk in them, live in them, do them as godly men. But I'm destined for glory. You're destined for glory. See, that's coming. And one of the things about David's life is that the glory part was coming. The kingship was coming. But he had all these years in the middle where he was to live in perfect communion with God, trusting in God. Same thing's true of you and I. We are his children. We are his heirs. Together with Christ, we're heirs of God's glory. We do have something great awaiting us. But at this point, we have to share in his suffering. See, David had to learn what it was like to suffer and to serve in obscurity, hiding in caves, waiting for God to fulfill his will, knowing that there was a prize awaiting him. The same thing's true for me and you, right? The prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. See, there's something great waiting me, but right now I'm in this wilderness, right? I'm in this temporary time slot where I'm not yet in heaven with him. I'm here. And this is his training school for me. This is his preparation as I wait for that crown. See, David was waiting for a crown. David was waiting for a coronation. He'd been anointed, but he had not yet been confirmed as king. So in the meantime, like David, we have to suffer what? Strife, struggles, heartache, hurts, setbacks, disappointments, attacks, failures. All these things come into our lives and we tend to go, God, why now? Why me? What are you doing? What have I done to offend you? And when we should be saying, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to perfect in me? How are you trying to prepare me? See, you and I are leaders in training. Some of us are further down the road than others, but we're all in some point of leadership training by God as he prepares us to do those works that he's prepared from beforehand. No, dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, Paul says. He, he knew he was a leader in training, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. In other words, I know there's a prize waiting for me. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. In the meantime, while I wait for the prize, I'm going to continue to learn what God has for me. I'm gonna be a good student. I'm gonna study hard. I'm gonna press on. I'm gonna fight the good fight. I'm gonna run the race. I'm gonna do all the things that we've been called to do. 
And he goes on in his letter to Timothy, if we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure hardship, we will reign with him. See, we're in this temporary period of time when like David, we're kind of running from the enemy. We're hiding, we're, we're fighting, and yet we're realizing that this is gonna turn out well because God keeps his promises. And I can endure this because I know one day I'm gonna reign with him. God is preparing you for the future but he's doing it in the here and now. He's training you, making you worthy to one day reign with him. Making you into the man of God that he wants you to be, transforming you into the likeness of his son. That's what this is all about. That's why we're here. I've often said, why God did you not take me when you saved me? If heaven is as good as you say it is, and I believe it to be so, then why did you leave me here? Because this is where he trains us for then. He's perfecting us. He's transforming us. He's doing it in this life, preparing us for the life to come. We're in transformation, right? I love this from Richard and Henry Blackaby. He says, failure in personal crises do not disqualify people from becoming leaders. Rather, God can use adversity to build certain qualities deep within one's character that could not be fully developed in any other way. I know you know that's true. You just don't like it. I don't like it either, but it's true. And and one of the things I'm going to encourage you to do sometime this week is go back and read Psalm 18. We're going to blow through it. And I just want to show you some of the things that David wrote. This is a psalm written by David when he was going through this incredibly tough period of his life. And it reflects his heart. You're going to see the as a fear of God. Verse three, he says, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. He had an awe of reverence for God, even though he's hiding in caves and running from Saul. He says, the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. He understood that God is mighty and holy and righteous and just and sometimes just in his anger against his creation. He says, who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? There is no other God. How did David know that? Because he was learning to trust God even in the midst of difficulty. He refers to God in all these different ways in Psalm 18. He's my strength, my rock, my deliverer, my shield, my horn of salvation, my stronghold, my stay, my land. All these analogies were meant to help him describe the God he was learning more and more about as he went through this period of his life. Are you learning this about God? Are you learning that he's your strong rock, he's your protector, he's your strong tower? Is that what you're learning as you go through these difficulties or what you're learning about God is that he's distant, he doesn't care, he's left me, he's forsaken me. See, what God wants you to understand is that this is who he is. Not just in the good times, but in the bad times, in the difficult times. He says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Those are strong words, right? Strong words of proclamation about who God was to him. When? When he's on the throne? No, when he's hiding in a cave. This is what he believed about God. He says, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me for they were too mighty for me. When did he write this? When it was taking place, not afterwards. This is not his post-testimony. 
when he's sitting on the throne in the luxury of the palace going, man, this is, this is sweet. This is worth waiting for. God's a good God. No, he's hiding in a cave surrounded by misfits and ne'er-do-wells, and he's saying, this is what God is doing for me. See, that's what I want to be true of my life. I want to be able to say those things now, not later. He says, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Again, when did he write this? When he was in the midst of it. Because he was convinced of God's love. He knew God loved him. How did he know that? Because he regularly heard God's voice. He experienced God's deliverance. He'd seen God's hand over and over again in his life. He had been rescued repeatedly by God. He felt God's delight in his life. He knew that God was smiling on him, not angry with him. He had felt God's guiding hand. He had been trained over and over by God to do what? I think not only to fight, but also to withhold and not fight. On two different occasions, he could have killed Saul, and he refused to do so because God didn't tell him to. He was learning all kinds of things. He had been strengthened by God, crowned to be the next king, and he felt the loving kindness of God. All during this time, and it, devote, it developed in him a devotion to God. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. I've kept the ways of the Lord. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Again, when is he saying this? In the midst of the turmoil, the trials, the difficulties, the setbacks, the heartaches, the disappointments. And he showed God his devotion by regularly expressing love to him. How do we know that? Well, because he took the time to write more than 73 psalms. And we have a record of what was in his heart and in his mind at this time. He cried out to God regularly. He kept God's ways, even though sometimes it didn't make sense. He kept himself free from iniquity. Perfectly? No, we know that didn't happen. But he strived to do the right thing. He viewed God's enemies as his own. He obeyed God fully, and he thanked God openly and unashamedly. And all of these come from Psalm 18. He expresses it in his own words. He was devoted to God. And his love of God produced humility. A humility before God, because he knew God was holy. He knew he wasn't, and therefore, he knew God loved him. In spite of unholiness, in spite of his lack of perfection, he knew that God loved him. He knew God was powerful. He was the source of all his strength. He's the one who saved him from his enemies, including Saul. He's the one who trained his hand for battle. He's the one who gave him success in battle. He's the one who would make him king. He knew all of this about God. How did he know this? Because he lived it. As God executed judgment for him, as God stepped alongside and protected him and, and, and fed him and led him and did all these things for him during those dark days of his life. Arthur W. Pink says, it's only as we are absorbed with his perfection, the perfection of God, his infinitude, his majesty, his omnipotency, that self will be lost sight of. You know, the greatest lesson you and I have to learn is to take our eyes off us. We are way too self-focused. We are so myopic. All we do is think about us, our pain, our problems, our successes, our failures, our wants, our desires, our wishes. But I got to get my eyes off of me and put them on God. Because David learned what pride could do. He saw it in Saul's life. He had seen what it did to the Israelites. 
That's why he writes in verse 18, you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. See, God hates the prideful. And David was learning that. James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know what that verse doesn't say, but it infers is that God does not give grace to who? The prideful. Stop and think about that for a second. When you are in your pride mode, you get no grace from God because you're self-sufficient. You don't need God's grace, you think, but you do. So I put these two definitions or these series of definitions in your notes. Pride is believing that I have achieved what God has done through me and others have done for me. Pride is seeking the praise of men and assuming credit for the achievements of others. He hates pride. Pride is the worst crutch of all. And grace is an active force within us that produces the desire and power to do things God's way. That's why we should be humble, because I need grace. I need grace to live the life that I've been called to live. So Arthur W. Pink goes on with this. In the day of the Laodicean conceit and boasting, it needs to be emphasized that as a general rule, those whom God has used most mightily have not been men who were distinguished for abnormal natural powers or gifts, but instead by deep humility. That's David. David was a humble man. David was a man after God's own heart. David was a man with flaws, failures, and yet God used him because David was devoted to God. So here's your questions. Why is humility such an important characteristic of a godly man? How does a proper fear of God produce a healthy kind of humility? We've seen it in David's life. How could that be true in my life and in your life? Secondly, what are some crutches that keep you from being a godly man? And I hope you'll be honest. We all have them, right? Um, We just need to talk about it and encourage one another to let them go. Give it up and put your weight back on God. Finally, godliness doesn't happen overnight. So how could impatience or the need for instant gratification proved to be a problem when it comes to pursuing godliness. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of David. Lord, I'm grateful that you put this guy in the Bible with all his warts. Uh, you didn't clean him up. You didn't dress him up. You, you just let us see everything. Father, I, I'm, I'm grateful you didn't do that with my life. I, I'm, I'm glad you didn't put my life in the Bible um, where everybody could see all my flaws. But Lord, we realize that just like David, you love us in spite of us. You, you love us even with all our warts, even with all our failings. And you sent your son to die for us while we were yet sinners. And you were in the midst of transforming us into his likeness. And Father, may we embrace that. Would you show us the crutches in our lives? Would you show us how to let go of those and lean on you, to trust you, to humbly follow you and realize that we're in your leadership school and you're training us for godliness. Help us to be good students. And I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.